Not well. <laughs> Run away. Uh, I, uh, uh, I've known some people that uh, cannot admit failure. Um, they, uh, they tend to be the best at everything, or at least they claim to be the best at everything. You ever, you ever talk to people like this that everything that you've done, they've done better and more and, and more often, and you just can't, there's no way you can ever even compete with anything that they've ever done. Um, so they tend to brag uh, quite a bit, and I think that failure is just not in their vocabulary. Uh, I'd think that's few and far between. Um, my personal experience with failure um, is that I just hate it, um, and so I tend to avoid things that I'm not good at. Um, or things that I can't, I know that I'm going to fail at. I just try to stay away. I don't want to even do those things. Anybody else like that? Two people? Okay, three, four, five, all right. Um, and so people deal with failure in different ways. David um, has a very bad reaction to failure, okay? And so what we're going to see in the next few stories uh, of David's life um, is his reaction to his failure with Bathsheba. Um, I think what happened, okay, and this is, I'm going to interject a lot of, of my um, interpretation, we'll say it that way, into what's going on here. But I think that David believed uh, that he really might have been the Messiah, okay, uh, the first part of his life, he, he can't seem to do wrong. Everything he does succeeds. He kills giants. Um, he's anointed as, as king. He knows that uh, he can't be touched. Um, every time you know, Saul comes after him, he not only escapes, but he has an opportunity uh, to kill Saul. He what doesn't kill Saul, and finally he becomes king. Um, and everything that he does from that point forward seems to just grow and succeed and be blessed and favored. And it's like he, he just is this person that God has anointed and God has promised uh, that his throne will never end. He promises him, you know, all this glory. And, and he just, I think he thought he, he just couldn't fail. And when he does fail, I think he couldn't handle who he was anymore. Like he didn't know who he was. Um, and it so impacted the rest of his life that what we're going to see in these next stories is his reaction, his response to um, the failure of his family, how everything went uh, chaotic and uh, out of control and how it impacted his life and then how he's responding to that and what we can learn uh, from that in our own lives to the failures that we experience because uh, we're going to fail. I don't know if you, uh, you know that or not. I'm, I'm sure um, you've been through some uh, times in your life where you failed. Um, but the fact is that we're human. Uh, we're limited. We're, I, I don't, do I have to make a real case here? <laughs> we fail. And uh, if it weren't for God's grace and mercy, um, we might be in the same p position that David's in um, with just not understanding what life is about. Um, so let's stand as we read God's Word. Uh, we're going to pick it up far into uh, the circumstances here, okay? David is um, leaving Jerusalem. He's abandoning Jerusalem because his son Absalom um, is coming in with an insurrection, with an army to take over. Um, and David is just abandoning 
um, Jerusalem and trying to stay alive. And so this is what happens, and we're going to pick it up in verse 5. This is 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. It says, When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of, the, of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men uh, were on his right hand and on his left. So David and his men and his army are they're going through a valley, and Shimei is casting stones down on them from above. Shimei said as, as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. Sounds good to me. The king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, and while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him, flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. And Father, we uh, give you praise, God, today. We thank you. That uh, you are a God who looks on us with love, with grace and mercy. Um, in in your cosmic plan, Lord, you you knew exactly what we needed, and you knew exactly how to achieve it through your Son. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, that uh, even though we fail, and maybe because we do uh, so often. Um, so monumentally sometimes, Lord, we, we thank you for the grace that you extend to us, Lord. It's not just forgiveness and grace. It's, it's a sense, Lord, that uh, you truly do value each and every one of us, Lord. You, you love us that much. You, you care for us so much. You've, you have uh, told us who we are, Lord, that uh, we are the apple of your eye. We are highly valued, and we look at our lives and, and our behavior, our attitudes, and we think it just seems so impossible, Lord, but um, you made us in your image. You sanctified us and redeemed us through your son, Jesus, and you declared that we um, have eternity, Lord, as our inheritance if we would simply receive your truth. And God, I pray that we would take a hold of that today. Lord, as we deal with life's struggles and the failures that we all go through, Lord, I pray that we would not let them define us, but that we would be defined according to your word. 
according to your will, and uh, that we would live confident lives, Lord, in your image, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So we have to um, back it up quite a little bit. I, I picked it up pretty far along in the story. Um, in chapter 11, okay, is where we see David and Bathsheba. Chapter 12 is when Nathan, the prophet, rebukes David, and uh, he begins to talk to him about what is happening um, with his sin. Now, here's what I believe happens, and we'll dive into this more as we go along. But I believe what David uh, grasps from Nathan's rebuke is that he is forgiven, okay, by God, but he does not understand grace. And to, to us, I think that seems like a, a strange uh, combination of things. How can you be forgiven and not understand grace? But in their concept, uh, I don't think it was really a stretch because uh, for them, um, you had the religion of the Jewish people, which uh, provided for uh, cleansing through the sacrifices. So you bring your sacrifice to the temple, you uh, pour out the blood, and you sprinkle everything with blood, and you, you have forgiveness. But the closeness, okay, uh, the relationship, the restoration of the relationship, um, it, it seems to be distant because you have a, a temple structured uh, with the Holy of Holies in the center, right? You guys know the, the temple structure. You have an outer court, and then you have an inner court, and then you have an inner, inner court, and then you have the Holy of Holies. And in that Holy of Holies, there's the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. That's the seat of God, okay? And behind that, uh, that curtain is where the high priest once a year can go and offer sacrifice. It's a big, thick curtain dividing the people from from the presence of God, okay? Now, one of the things that they do, because they weren't sure, okay, if this high priest, maybe he didn't quite cleanse himself appropriately, maybe he's got some secret sin in his life, they would tie a rope around his waist and send the guy in there with the sacrifice just in case he's not holy enough and he drops dead. They can fish his body out of this holy of holy place, okay? So, the concept for these people that you can have forgiveness but not have a relationship with God I, seems to be kind of embedded in some of the ways that they think and practice. Would you agree? Like it's there? I think that's what's starting to happen. So when you begin to see uh, the next events in David's life, it, it makes more sense that, that he, he didn't quite grasp um, who he was anymore because he had changed in that failure. Something had shifted in, in his own concept of himself. So the very next chapter is chapter 13. And how long is it between David and Bathsheba and then Am Amnon and Tamar? We don't know for sure. I'm going to um, bring a little bit of conjecture in this, okay? I, I think the, the scholars say David was around 50 years old when uh, he sinned with Bathsheba. Um, the events from Amnon and Tamar to what we read about David fleeing Jerusalem is a, a space of about 12 years, okay? So let's say David is 50 when, when this all happens. He'd be 62 when he fled Jerusalem. 
he only lives to be about 68 or 70, somewhere in there. We're not 100% sure about exactly when he died, but somewhere in that span, okay? So it's likely that Amnon and Tamar, his kids, um, that event happens pretty quickly after the, the issue with David and Bathsheba. Let's say months, maybe a year or two, but not a long time, okay? So it's kind of fresh for David, and here's what happens. David has 10 wives, so he has lots of kids, and lots of his kids have different moms. Amnon uh, is one of his sons who um, he is attracted to his half-sister Tamar, okay? Now, that's gross, okay? It was gross for them. It, 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 this is, it's gross for us, but people think, look, well, this is way back in Bible times, so maybe that's kind of normal. For the last 500 years, they had had the law of, of Moses. Um, so even in David's time, okay, they knew that that was a gross thing. They, they did not practice incest in David's time. Um, that was something that they knew was forbidden. So for Amnon to uh, want to marry his uh, half-sister was just not something that they would allow, okay? Now, he comes up with, well, I don't know if he comes up with a plan, but um, he asks his cousin, we, we, we pulled the plug on the baptismal, so anybody want to crawl in there and put the plug back in? All right, so what <laughs> you hear the noise, it's, it's okay. Just try to ignore that. What happens here, though, is that he has this slimy uh, cousin who comes with a, up with a plan uh, for Amnon to somehow um, attract his half-sister Tamar. And so he says, here's what you do. Pretend to be sick, and uh, King David will come, and he'll ask you what's, what's wrong, and then you say, I want Tamar to come and make me some chicken noodle soup to make me feel better. Okay, that's, that's what's going on. So he does this. He's like, that sounds like a good plan to me. David comes. What's wrong? I'm sick. I, I want Tamar to come and make some. It says bread, but if you look at the language, the bread that he's talking about is boiled, so it's more like either dumplings or noodles, okay? So I'm, when I say you're making chicken noodle soup, I'm not kidding. Like, this is probably the same kind of stuff that you would give somebody who feels bad is what they were feeding people back then. So she comes and she does this, and uh, he, uh, for the young people, close your ears, he rapes her, okay? And then he hates her after this event. He had loved her. He was so infatuated with her. He... Uh, defiles her, and then now he hates her. Now, here's what I think. He doesn't necessarily hate her as much as he hates who? Himself. I think what happens here is that she reminds him of how disgusting he is, and he, he can't stand the sight of it. It reminds him of how much he hates himself. Well, what happens here is in verse 20, uh, chapter 13, verse 20, uh, her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Sound like good advice? Anybody, anybody here think that that's okay? All right, well, as long as you said don't take it to heart, I guess I won't. 
So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother's Absalom. She's not ever going to be married. Okay? She's going to live um, as basically a widow in her brother's house. Absalom is her full brother, both mom and dad. Um, so when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And so here's the thing. He tells Tamar not to take it to heart, but what does he do? He takes it to heart. He holds a grudge. Um, he, is, he is planning something here. But here's what I want you to see, is that in verse 21, King David uh, heard of all these things. He was very angry, uh, which sounds like appropriate emotional response. Would you agree? He'd be very angry. Um, but he doesn't do anything. He's mad, but he, he's, he has lost his moral courage to do what the law would require him to do in this case. And here's what I think is happening. Because of David's moral failure, he lost his moral courage. The application for you and me here, um, how many of us have failed in our youth? That'd be most of us. Um, whether it was impurity, um, alcohol, uh, recklessness, I mean, it, it could have been any number of things that, that we failed uh, to do the right thing. And here's what I see for a lot of Christians, that they, I don't want to say a lot of Christians, but it is a lot of Christians. We're very permissive with our young people, whether they're our kids or somebody else's, because we feel a lot of times like, because I failed in this area, I can't speak the truth to my child in that area because I, I have no moral standing. I didn't do the right thing, so how can I tell them to do the right thing? And, and we're lying to ourselves in one sense because uh, what we're ultimately declaring is that if I couldn't succeed, then maybe nobody can. And we actually almost put a lie onto the next generation. You can't possibly uh, resist temptation. Nobody can. You're just, you're so filled with hormones. Don't we talk about teenagers like this? Oh, it's just hormones. All these hormones are raging in your body, and, and it's like you're just little, little monsters who can't control themselves, and, and you're just going to go crazy. So, you know, we'll just throw, you know, contraceptives at them instead of the truth. Um, and I think we're doing a huge disservice to the next generation. A lot of parents, Christian parents, um, won't talk to their kids openly about um, purity, about mistakes that we've made, about how to overcome, how to stay away from uh, the crowds that are going to lead you down the wrong path. Uh, instead, we, we hope that they'll be better than we were and close our eyes and close our ears and only when the bad you know, report comes do we then deal with it. And by that point, it's too late. 
If you haven't been talking to your kids from the time that they are eight years old, okay, I'm just throwing a number out there, about these things, when they reach 13, 14, 15 years old and you haven't talked to them about sex and drugs and drinking and influences and language and media and pornography and all the rest of it. You haven't been having these conversations with them. Who is? Their peers have already been talking to them wrongly about the things that you and I should have been talking to them about what God's word says. Amen? Don't lose your moral courage just because you had a moral failure. The truth of God is the truth of God no matter if I was obedient to it when I should have been. It's still his standard. It's still his truth, and we need to be teaching that to our young people. So anyway, David says, what am I going to do? I, I, and here's the why essentially David has a big problem. David has done essentially what, what Amnon has done to Bathsheba. It's, it's only different by a degree. David has taken his position and his authority and his power, and he's manipulated it to take advantage of somebody. It's virtually rape, even though it may not have been the same type of situation. It was virtually the same thing. So he says, well, what can I possibly say? I'm forgiven. God didn't put me to death. What am I going to do with my son? Uh, so Absalom has a little bit of a, a different view. Would you agree? <laughs> Two years later, okay, uh, he comes up with a plan, and he has land, and he has sheep, and he has possessions, and he has his own household and all these things. And so um, he actually concocts this idea where he's going to have a, a festival and a, a celebration and invite all his family to come. He goes to David, and he invites him to come out to this festival. Now, I'm going to, again, I'm going to insert my, my interpretation here. I believe that... Absalom had intended to kill David at that point as well. He kills Amnon. He invites Amnon to this thing, and Amnon is killed. I think if David would have gone to this feast, that he was next on the chopping block, and then Absalom would have taken the throne at that point. I can't prove that. The Bible doesn't say that. Um, but we know from what happens later that he certainly seems to have a grudge against David. There's something going on here where he, um, he blames David for what has happened to his sister, and he holds a grudge against David for not dealing with Amnon. So he kills Amnon, or yeah, Amnon. Absalom kills Amnon, and then he runs away. And so um, in chapter 13, verse 37, it says, Absalom fled, went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. Now, who is that? That is Absalom's grandpa on his mother's side. Okay, so he goes to grandpa's house. So Absalom fled, went to Geshur, and was there for three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Here's what David responds. Amnon deserved to die. Okay, that's David's response to what Absalom did to Amnon. He deserved to die. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If David... If I'm right, then maybe I'm not, but if I'm right, and David has essentially done what Amnon did, only different by a degree, then what does David think about himself? 
he deserves to die. He's living on borrowed time, and, and he does not have a very high view of himself. Amnon deserved to die, and so David says, well, good on you, Absalom, basically. <laughs> I'd like to have you come back. So he leaves for a few years, and then there's a whole thing about Joab trying to get uh, David to bring him back. And verse 21, chapter 14, Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. So Joab arose, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house, did not come into the king's presence. Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Here's where I'm, I'm uh, transposing what I believe happened in David's own heart, in his own relationship with God, is what he has done here with Absalom. What he has said is, you're forgiven, but I'm not offering you any grace. You're forgiven, you can come live in Jerusalem, but I don't want to see you. And I believe David, he had accepted God's forgiveness for his sin, but he did not step into grace in restoration, in fellowship with God, in understanding that he was seen, not just as forgiven, but as restored, okay? This is the, one of the things that, that in the church we have to make sure that we are very clear about. It's not just that at the cross that you're forgiven, okay? It is that. You are forgiven. Uh, but that God's grace goes beyond forgiveness into a, a place where you are positionally seen as being just like his son Jesus. And we don't feel that way, okay? We, we can accept forgiveness like, okay, my sins are forgiven. God is not holding it against me, but God is so holy, and I'm still just a sinner who makes mistakes, and I do wrong things, and I feel wrong things, and I think wrong things, say wrong things. Does he really want a relationship with me? And most Christians, I think, and maybe I'm wrong about this, I don't think so. But most Christians accept the forgiveness of God and still live apart from God. And we come to church to hear about this God that we um, have been told about. Um, we come to church to worship and, and maybe even experience His presence momentarily. But in the day-to-day, week-to-week experience of our lives, a lot of People who believe have no personal relationship with God. And the issue is not forgiveness, it's grace. We don't understand the extent to which God has welcomed us into his presence. When he tore that curtain in the Holy of Holies, I mean, he said, you are welcome to come to the throne of grace anytime, and experience God's presence. Amen? I don't think David gets it yet. I don't think he's quite there. Um, He offers forgiveness, but not grace. Chapter 15, um, Absalom finally does come to David uh, face to face, actually at the end of 14, says, so he came to the king, bowed himself to his face, or on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So I think this is probably just posturing. 
for the most part, for, for Absalom. He, he comes, but what he's going to do from this point forward is he's going to try to get control of Israel. And so what he does is very sly. It's very political. Um, he goes to the gate now in Jerusalem and in all these you know, old ancient uh, cultures. The gate was where you did the legal stuff. And uh, David doesn't go to the gate very often. Okay? He's busy doing other stuff. Um, but Absalom, as the, the prince, as the prince, as the king's son, would go to the gate, and people would come up to him, and they would bow down, oh, you're the king's son, and, and he would just grab them and hug them and kiss them and say, oh, I'm just like you. We're equals. You don't need to bow down to me. You don't call, need to call me any fancy names. He was, in their words, he was down to earth, right? Don't we love our leaders to be down to earth? Just... He's just a regular guy, just like you and me, and we can go and we can talk to him, and uh, he'll, he'll listen, and he says, if I were the king, man, I wouldn't just judge the important cases. I would make sure everybody got what they deserved, and they just flocked to him, and they loved him, and he gains a following, and so finally, he feels like he's got enough of a following. He goes uh, to... Uh, Hebron and becomes king. He, they declare him king. Hebron is where who also was king? David was king for seven and a half years in Hebron before he came to Jerusalem and was king over all of Israel. Absalom is just following that same pattern. I'm going to go get the support of Hebron, and then after that, I'm going to gain control of everything. So they go and they declare him king. And now he's on his way to Jerusalem to take over. And in verse 13, chapter 15, verse 13 says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee. He abandons Jerusalem, and he runs for his life. This is where we come to the uh, curses of Shemi. There's all kinds of stuff happening here. He's got all these people coming to him. He's devising some plans. He leaves some spies in Jerusalem. He's got people supporting him. Um, but anyway, he goes, um, and while he goes, Shimei is cursing him. And David does something here, which, okay, as you look at this passage, you might think, and I actually saw some uh, commentators say, oh, David is so humble. Um, listen. This is false humility. This is victim mentality. And why I say that is because he says um, the cursing uh, that the Lord has, has said to him, curse David. Who should say, why have you done so? Um, David says, God has told him to curse. Now, that cannot be true. It cannot be true because David himself knew and lived and declared that the word of God said in Deuteronomy, you shall not curse your leaders. And he lived that. Whenever Saul was after him, you remember this? And he's running away from Saul, and he has the opportunity to kill Saul two different times. And he not only does not kill Saul, he said, who can lift their finger against the Lord's anointed and not be guilty? You can't just not kill them. You can't even verbally wish that they were dead or curse them or declare anything against your leaders. It, it is against the law. Now, 
if it is against the law, God has declared it in his word, you cannot and shall not do this, will God contradict himself and then tell this person to do that? So when David says, God's told him to curse me, can he be correct in that? It, it cannot be. What David is doing at this point is he is seeking pity. Other people's pity, God's pity, I don't know, but he's, he wants to be seen as a victim. Now, here's what happens with some people and failure. Um, they don't believe that they deserve to have failed. It's always somebody else's fault. If I'd been raised differently, if my boss would have given me a chance, if that coach would have put me in, if... You know, these other people wouldn't have gotten in my way. I could have been successful. I could have done this. But, you know, it just this, the cards were stacked against me, and I never, I never got the chance. And we're, we're victims instead of victors, and, which is a very strange thing for David, who has been such a victorious person all of his life until now. Why? What changed? His failure has changed fundamentally how he thought of himself. He never seems to get over the fact that he's a human being that can make a mistake and still be restored. So he accepts this cursing. And then it says in verse 15, Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. Um, you remember who Ahithophel is? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? <laughs> Three weeks ago, I, I asked people who, if they knew who Ahithophel is. Nobody knows who Ahithophel is. He is Bathsheba's grandfather. He was David's counselor, but as soon as Absalom you know, says, I want to be king, he turns and he supports Absalom because he also took it to heart. So he gets Ahithophel. Um, David sends Hushai uh, to be a bad counselor. And, okay, long story short, what happens is uh, Hushai uh, succeeds in giving Absalom bad advice. They wait for David to um, basically rally his army. Instead of going after him immediately, they wait. David rallies his army and they come back, and they go to battle. Now, what happens in the battle um, is that they're, they're battling in a forest, and the trees are, I don't know, gobbling people up. It's uh, like straight out of Lord of the Rings or something, but the people are just getting, you know, whacked by all these branches, and Absalom himself, riding on his donkey, um, gets caught up in a tree branch. Now, one of the things that the Bible says about Absalom is that his hair kind of like Jack's, I think. Jack, you want to give us a full display? No. So he had to cut his hair once a year because it got so heavy that he couldn't hardly stand it. And so they would cut his hair once a year and it weighed five pounds. Now maybe he didn't wash his hair every year either. I don't know. But um, his hair was just thick. And so he gets caught up in this tree. He's dangling from a tree. David has told the officers of his army, do not harm Absalom. Whatever else you do, I'm 
commanding you to protect his life. Joab, remember Joab? Kind of a scoundrel, does what he wants. Here's what happens, chapter 18, verse 14. Joab took three javelins in his hand after somebody said, hey, Absalom's hanging in that tree over there. Takes three javelins, thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then 10 young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Now, I don't know if the, you would think three javelins in the heart would, go, would do that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they struck him and killed him. So Absalom is dead. The insurrection is squashed. And here's what happens. Chapter 18, verse 31. The report comes back to David. Behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? I mean, he's saying, It better be. <laughs> I commanded my officers not to harm him. And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Okay. What does that mean? It means he died a horrible death, basically. The king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And he, he's not just grieving his son who's died. That's, he is grieving his son. David is taking responsibility for everything that has happened. He's grieving that this is all his fault. Amnon and Tamar, Absalom and Amnon, Absalom and the insurrection, Absalom's death, all of it, he says, is his fault. He has basically given into his identity as a failure. Now, here's the conclusion and the moral of the story. Joab then rebukes David because his, his men have just secured his throne and his victory for him. Um, that David is weeping over his son, and they're sneaking back into town as if they are ashamed, as if they've done something wrong. And Joab says, if you do not... Go and sit in the gate and welcome your men and, and respond to them and celebrate their victory. You're, you're not going to be king anymore. And here's the moral of the story. David does not believe in himself anymore, but he has people that do. And sometimes your failure is going to be so um, obvious and sickening to you. But here's what you need to know. You're not just forgiven, okay? God has given you grace, which means that even if you don't believe in yourself, God believes in you. Even if, if you can't stand what you've done in your life and the, the things that you've allowed your, yourself uh, to be involved with in your past, God looks at you differently. He doesn't look at you like that. He calls and he invites and he welcomes you into not just forgiveness 
but into a brand new identity that you can find in Jesus Christ and you can have purpose and you can have peace and you can, this is what the church understands about grace that, that no other community, no other religion, no other, no other culture, okay? They don't understand this. When we look at people, we see their value because of what Jesus did for them. And we see that they're not permanently lost. We're temporarily making mistakes and permanently seen as God's children. It means that you can change and you can be restored to whatever it is that God has called you to be. Everyone has that potential. No one is outside of that potential. And I'm going to tell you, we got to start with our own church. Amen? we got to start with ourselves, that I am something new in Christ. Because when I know that for me, and I receive not just the forgiveness, but the grace, I have the ability to then transfer that to anyone and everyone. It's the message of the gospel. I think David's going to recover it eventually. At this point, he's still struggling. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, you look at us differently than we look at ourselves, and maybe anyone else looks at us, Lord. Um, sometimes we have a hard time understanding just why and how you could possibly love us, Lord. We, uh, we've made so many mistakes. Sometimes we let those mistakes define who we are. But your word and your truth, Father, they, uh, they declare something different. Made in your image, redeemed by your Son, invited into your kingdom, called according to your plans and your purpose, Lord. We have the potential to be new creatures. Each and every one of us, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that grace is such a powerful message, Lord. It doesn't change the fact that we we need to follow and obey you, Lord. We don't get a, a license to do wrong. In fact, uh, because of grace, we are encouraged freely to live a life that is worthy of your glory. We thank you for that. But we also are given uh, the ability to be restored each and every day and, and multiple times a day if need be. We can confess, we can repent, we can come back, we can be restored to right fellowship with you and continue in that purpose that you have for each and every one of us, Lord. We thank you. God, my prayer is that you would speak that message into each and every heart, God. If anyone is questioning whether they are loved or worthy, Lord, I pray that you would speak boldly, 
loudly into their heart. They are loved. They are valued. They are precious to you. All we have to do is reach out and receive that. Lord, help us to do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to lay your failures at the altar, whatever they may be, um, and let them go once and for all. Amen? Let's stand and sing.